Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As anybody who listens in regularly will know, we release three different types of podcasts. There's our seminar series where we provide an opportunity to listen back to some of the most important presentations at past events we've held. We have a 10 minute lesson series where we aim to educate and inform listeners about particular areas of policy, giving short snapshots, a brief overview, somewhere in the range of eight to 15 minutes, hitting on the key points that people need to know. And then we have our interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This week is one of those. To mark United Nations World Day Against Trafficking in Persons. This week, I'm joined by Donald Leader, who's the Advocacy Officer at Christian Brothers European Province, John McGeady, who's the Justice Officer for the Sisters of Our Lady of Apostles, Irish Province, and Brian O'Toole, who's Director of the Interprovincial Justice Desk for the Presentation Sisters. They talked to me about how they came together to create a civil society submission to the Universal Periodic Review, looking at Ireland's human rights obligations and responses to human trafficking measures, domestic and gender-based violence, and migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. We hope you enjoy it. So I might begin at the beginning. The interesting part of this, as well as the, the what, like what's actually in the submission is the how and the why, I think is really, really interesting. And I think for a lot of our listeners and a lot of people who are interested in the work of Social Justice Ireland, I think we'll be really interested in how civil society organisations come together. If I could begin maybe with Brian, you might tell us just a bit about I suppose, the, the genesis of this, the impetus behind it, why, why you did this. Um, well, last October, Edmund Rice International offered 10 weeks of training from their Geneva office. And it was offered really to congregations and attached people, as opposed to congregations. And it, it concerned really the human rights mechanisms and processes working out of Geneva and of the United Nations in New York. It also involved the sustainable development goals. But something that particularly caught my attention was the Universal Periodic Review, where one country or a group of countries can examine one country on their human rights record. Every country is examined every four years. So when we kind of went through the, if you like, the, the lesson or the section on the Universal Periodic Review, we were more than just given text and detail and video. We were encouraged to take part. We were encouraged to be advocates. We were encouraged to do something about this. And that was really the important part about this training that we were encouraged to move. But I suppose we were all together in this training. So the first thing that I took from that was First, to question, when is the next Universal Periodic Review for Ireland? So when I query this, I realised that it's actually November. So this particular course hit at a perfect time. It couldn't have come at a better time because it meant it was fresh in my mind um, and that we had enough time if we wanted to do something about it, not just to do it on my own, but to do it with others. And one of the reasons for looking for a partner, and I specifically went about looking for a partner, and I had a couple of reasons for it. Firstly, I didn't know an awful lot about the UPO process. I had no experience in having done this type of a thing before, but I was keen that perhaps as part of the Presentation Sisters and the wider International Presentation Association, we should make some attempt at making some sort of intervention or submission. So that was one reason I went about looking for a partner, was somebody who had the experience. The other reason was that a joint submission allows for a larger submission. 
than just one person going on their own. It also means too that if you have two or three, then there is a greater weight to whatever submission is submitted. So there were lots of reasons for going together with this. So the next question then was, well, now that I'm interested in finding a partner, how do I go about this and what do I do? I would say the NGO sector and the civil society sector, as you mentioned at the beginning, are all connected in lots of different ways we have to be, because I suppose we move in the same circles and lots of different things, but we often encourage each other, prompt each other in how we do what we do. So through somebody involved, a sister involved in the International Press Intelligence Association, she put me in touch with Donal, who had also put out a similar kind of antenna to see who might be interested in partnering. So I met with Donal and our particular focus in the International Presentation Association is ending violence against women and children. So I was kind of thinking if I could find somebody whose commitments or whose focus was similar or overlapped to some extent with mine, then we had a commonality. Therefore, we could submit a joint submission. So when I met Donald, Donald was able to explain that his area of concern was migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. And we could certainly see a commonality in what we were doing. So there we had the first piece of the jigsaw in place. As part of the process of trying to figure out who should we get or where should we go or what next, um, I answered an email from Renata, which are another civil society group, if you like, and they are the Religious in Europe Networking Against Trafficking and Exploitation, and we're a member of that. So they had sent an email asking, was there any item that they thought that we would like included on their annual general meeting of Renata? So I kind of just put forward one suggestion to say, is it a case that you might consider putting the UPR, the Universal Periodic Review, on their agenda? And they came straight back. And I was invited to meet Imelda Poole, who's the president of Renata. And when I met with Imelda, she was very enthusiastic and she offered whatever help she could. Very quickly then, she put me in contact with John. And so all of a sudden we had three. So soon after Christmas, myself, John and Donald met for the first time. And John, who is the Justice Officer with um, the Sisters of Our Lady of, of Apostles, his particular area of concern was human trafficking or an, a, a commitment to an end to human trafficking. So we could see how there was domestic and gender-based violence could link there and also trafficking and could link with migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. So straight away, we had a group who could work. And I suppose the point I would make, and I've made it several times now at this stage, is that I have met Donald twice. Um, physically and um, socially distant, if you like. I haven't, I haven't actually met John yet because of COVID, which meant that if we were to do our work, we had to do our work a whole new way, a whole different way, which is what we did. We used the Zoom platform again and again. We used Google Docs. Donald is working off an Apple Mac. Um, John is working off a temperamental internet and um, sometimes living up in Donegal. And then we have links and links and links going back and they're being lost and, we, you know, but anyway, we managed to make connection. Our submission was due on March 18th. So we began by putting down a paper what we felt were the issues. Um, we had to try and get a handle on exactly what is the structure of the document and what would be acceptable as a structure of the document. And that was a whole learning curve. Um, but once we kind of began putting things down on paper, we kind of got to a point where we kind of had the substance of what we wanted, but we needed it organised and ordered, if for no other reason than the document only allowed for a certain length. So we had to edit and re-edit and we had to pair back. We had to decide what was in, what was out. We had to look at our own sections in the context of the length of the section. We had to look at perhaps I could leave something out if it was being covered somewhere else and that that recommendation. So in the end, what we ended up with really were a set of concerns relevant to three particular topics. 
um, and we also ended up with a set of recommendations. So once we were kind of coming close to a position where we were happy enough with what we had put together, we had over the, that period of time invited those who were close to us, but who have an expertise in the particular area of domestic and gender-based violence, trafficking, an entry to human trafficking, migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. So we offered out our work to be proofed, checked, double checked, so that to be sure that whatever we were submitting was on point, was correct and was relevant or, you know, that it included the most relevant concerns and objections at the time. So at that stage then, once we, we were pretty close now to being almost ready to submit. And the last step we took really was to involve a human rights lawyer. And the reason we involved a human rights lawyer is that he had the experience um, that would look to the technicalities of the document and to test the technical integrity of what we had put together. And he came back with lots of very helpful suggestions, but everybody who we put out, you know, looking for some sort of, everybody was very helpful. Everybody offered suggestions and all of the suggestions were pretty much taken on board, which made what we put together very, very tight and very, very straightforward. It's kind of, so it's, so it's quite technical. So just before March 18th, we um, contacted Edmund Rice International, the team of Edmund Rice International in Geneva. And on our behalf, we asked them to submit our joint submission to the Irish UPR, which will be um, held next November. So that was the beginning of the process. And now that we had done that much, that was kind of, we felt the hard part, and it would be a shame not to continue on with the next part. And the next part really is about trying to involve others and invite others to become part of the process. And we did this by initially asking lots of different organizations particularly those who we know helped us out in terms of their expertise. We asked them to sign up to our universal periodic review. We asked them to, to, be, to be a part of it, I suppose. So we contacted them and others who were involved in the NGO sector and other interested people. We invited them to a webinar on the basis that they would learn a little bit more about what the UPO was, that they would become a little bit more familiar with our joint submission. And also, I suppose, that we would hope that they might identify themselves in all our collective next steps as we try to move this particular UP or joint submission as we try to move towards it becoming a, a living thriving document if you like as we head towards November and that really is kind of where we're at at this particular stage in terms of bringing to life or bringing to birth I suppose the joint ERI, OLA and IPA joint submission to the Irish UPR. So how many organisations have signed up in the end? How many signatories did you get? Uh, I think there are in excess of 20. Um, I know for a fact that we put out for more, but one of the big issues we had was time. We had to have it ready by March 18 for submission, but we needed it a week beforehand for the team. But in order to put it out, what we put out was the very near ready document and some because of the NGO sector, there are lots of voluntary boards and so on. It's difficult to get, to gather a board to, to if you like, to, to, to offer the seal of approval. So we also know for a fact as well that some have read it, understanding that, understanding where we were coming from, but knowing that they would have supported us anyway. So part of our work, I suppose, was to ask them later or to invite them in later to help them to become a little bit more familiar with what we were doing. And so it was like, it was like rounding people up after to say, look, do you know what you signed up to? Do you know what we're going to do with it now? You're part of a process and we'd really like your help. 
we're not on our own in this. So it's not it's it's courteous to 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 to, to return to people who have who have volunteered their signatures to something as important as this. But equally more than that, to for us to have done all of this work, not to get the traction that it deserves afterwards, which is traction for the issue, not for the people who yeah. put it together organization. It's about the issues and they are important issues and they are significant failings on, you know, from the government part. But equally to, I have to say that where we saw positive things, we put in positive things. We were also upset by things like um, the pandemic too has a, another slant on all of the issues we were looking at. So we had to take those into account. Um, and then things would have happened while we were doing it. For example, the direct paper or the white paper and direct provision was published halfway through. So in fairness, Donald took that upon himself and said, look, I'll take that. And Donald read through it at try, to try to find out where exactly it would apply to all of the work that we had done. So we actually had to revise what we had written in the context of the new white paper and the prompts that are being made for four years time. So it certainly did change some of what we said and how we said it. So it was a it was a it was a work in progress all the time. But even though it's submitted, I would still consider it a work in progress right up until November when the government are examined on this. I, I would say equally too, though, if you were to look at the three particular congregations, the three particular congregations have a back catalogue of very serious work in Ireland and abroad. So it's not without the weight of a lot of work and a lot of experience. So that too, in and of itself, adds to the weight of the submission that we sent in. And you had touched on that you had gone back and you had explained to your, your, your groupings what the Universal Periodic Review is. So I think that might be interesting for us to maybe chat about that for a couple of minutes. Would that be possible? Donald, would you, you, you might take this one, Donald, thank you. So Universal Periodic Review, I have to admit that I had never heard of this until back I think it was 2007 when I got to Geneva myself. And like so many others, I had this view of social justice work as being very much an activist on the ground. And so it was a shock for me when I arrived in Geneva and began working with the International Service for Human Rights, first of all, and then with Franciscans International, and then, of course, uh, with ERI itself, and attending courses on the whole issue. And I still rem remember the lady who stood up one day and said, OK, she said, all of you are activists and all of you are anxious to change the world right now. So she said, you are going to be dealing one on one and in meeting rooms with people that you would never in a month of Sundays even consider being on the same side of the street with. You're probably going to be meeting with people who have been involved in genocide and God knows what else. And she said, the first thing you have to do is leave your anger and your resentment and all those feelings, leave them all outside the door and really approach this in a sort of a, a calm, persuasive, logical way. Now, those two elements there of emotion and reason, if you like, were part of the background of the Universal Periodic Review itself, part of the background of its foundation, because for the longest time from 1948 onwards, right up to fall of the, the Berlin Wall in 1989, the kind of way the world was, it was stuck. People were just throwing literally bombs at each other. So there was no way in which reasoned dialogue could take place. So the big innovation that came with the Universal Periodic Review was where the nations sat down and said, look, let's all sit down together. Let's be the peer the peers of everybody else. Let's all judge one another's implementation of human rights. 
let's leave all our anger and emotion and our resentment and the Cold War and all the stuff in the past, leave it outside the door and let's work for the good of the people, of our citizens and of the peoples of the world. And let's do that in a way that's progressive and in a way that's accountable. So it was in that sort of framework that in 2006, in fact, uh, the UN in New York framed the whole process of a universal accountability system, which we call the universal review. And the beauty of it is that every nation on the face of the earth, irrespective of whether they're from the Eastern Bloc, the Western Bloc, the developing world, wherever they are, everybody comes up for review by the peers, by one's peers. And then early on, the distinct contribution which made it different from everything else before it was the involvement from the very beginning of civil society. I actually remember doing my first universal periodic review. I wince when I think about it. It was in fact in 2008, I think, yeah, maybe 2009. And the country was Zambia. Now we have houses and schools in Zambia. So I was a one person UPR review writer I made contact with some of our people in Zambia, got all kinds of information from them, some of it anecdotal, some of it real, some of it just stories, some of it off the wall. And I tried to correlate that with what I could find on the web at that time. And I wrote, I think it was a five-page UPR submission. <laughs> I don't, I never really know, Didn't I never found out what happened. It, it did go through the process, but I wince when I think of that. But the fact was it was done. Then again, I did the same thing again in, um, I think, 2011, but this time much more formally with a group, a coalition in the UK with England and Belfast and so on. So this process of working with other people, working with civil society, and then understanding that we can, as civil society, put questions to the nation states, and the nation states are accountable to us citizens. I think it's the only system in the international mechanisms of the world where that actually happens. So to me, this system whereby every country is reviewed by other countries every four years, where civil society has an input to me is enormously positive for the future of humankind. Because it's not something that doesn't tend to come to the foremost of our mind. If we've heard of NATO, we've heard of the UN, we've heard of charters on human rights, we may have heard of sustainable development goals, we may have heard of our constitutional rights. I mean, we, we, we're nearly drowning in codes and charters and uh, roadmaps. And as you said, for, for this unique, important piece of work to maybe not be front and centre is quite extraordinary, isn't it? it? It is, it is. But there is a certain element of conscientisation involved as well, that by the the sheer fact of being involved in this kind of work, one is conscientized oneself, one learns a lot, one begins to understand things in a new way. It's a way in which people can be mobilized. Now, it's difficult in this sense, because people who work very closely on the ground, for example, working with migrants or refugees, you know, when you're when you're on the street or going into direct provision centers or wherever else you may be, and you're working directly with people listening, you may be working to make sure that they get their papers done and, you know, that their, their application is processed is one-on-one -on -one very often. That's a very interpersonal relationship. When you go to something like the UPR, you're leaving that comfort zone way behind and you're dealing now with formal legal mechanisms. That's tough on people. And it can be a challenge. It can be a real challenge to get to grips with it. And I think it's one of the ways in which we have learned to be, to use that overused word, word 
uh, we've learned to be quote unquote professional, you know, to be able to have the aestheticism to leave our comfort zone behind, work with facts, work with figures, work with data, work with testimonies and so on, and make sure that something happens as a result. Hard work. No, thank you for that. I think it's really interesting. And I do think it's something, you know, as you said, not a lot of people will, will really understand that sort of UPR process. So your particular submission then is based on three separate areas. John, can you maybe take us through the, I think that the phrase you used was the geography of it. Is that right, John? That's right, Suzanne, yeah, um, the, the geography of our paper. Um, the, yeah, basically the layout, the structure. Um, and, you know, just to, to follow on from what Brian and from what Donald have both said, um, you know, this is a group effort and it was a group effort sort of inspired um, and instigated by the, the training with Edmund Rice International. So I suppose the first thing to say is to reiterate what Brian said was that we were introduced to this idea and I was on the same 10 week training course as Brian was on led by Edmund Rice International. Um, and, and like Brian who saw introduced for the first time to the UPR and said, wow, this is, this is an interesting, um, this is an interesting mechanism that we could try to make use of. I felt the same way um, and, and as Donal has just outlined. So our submission, just to be clear, so civil society submissions are, are submitted to the, to, the, to the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights uh, via the UPR process. And then they, they take all of the submissions about the country that they're under review. And then they collate the concerns and the recommendations and they create a, a report from the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights that covers the civil society submissions. And then that goes to the Human Rights Council, which is the, the 49 states who are who are going to be reviewing each country in that year. So there's a there's a very clear structure because the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights, their report has a structure. And so we very simply said, well, look, let's not um, reinvent the wheel. Let's follow their structure. And it essentially begins with, as um, as Brian noted, our um, signatories, all the different NGOs or civil society groups who are submitting this piece. Then we go into an introduction where we lay out who we are and what our three and what our areas of interest are, our areas of concern. And as, as we've noted, you know, we were looking at human rights um, in terms of human trafficking, domestic and gender-based violence, and migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. And very simply, we then provide a methodology. And as Donald has outlined, our methodology was very simple. We were in touch with organizations working on the ground, hearing what their concerns were. And then we were researching uh, the literature to find out, well, what's already been reported and what's already in there. So for example, I would have worked particularly on the section on human trafficking. And uh, I would have drawn very heavily on the trafficking in persons report that's released by the US State Department each year. Because you know they've laid out so many of those recommendations, uh, concerns, and recommendations, and in large part, what we're doing is well, we're looking well how all those things apply to the areas we're looking at in Ireland, uh, and bringing them using the Human Rights Council and using the UPR process as a way of bringing them again to the attention of the government. An awful lot of the time, it's not about reinventing the wheel. An awful lot of the time, it's about finding you know lots of different ways to bring the same issues that keep on coming up over and over again, keep on bringing to the attention of the government. And this process is one way of doing that. So following the 
the methodology. We, we then go into our first section, which is relating to human trafficking, uh, very um, creatively titled Section A, Human Trafficking. <laughs> um, and we just outline a very brief... Uh, that was my contribution. <laughs> <laughs> we, ju- we just outline a very brief introduction, you know, explaining that Ireland's been recognised as a country of origin, transit and destination in human trafficking. And then what we do is we provide concerns followed by recommendations. So we lay out the concern and then we lay out the recommendations that will respond to those concerns and hopefully address and fix those concerns if they're implemented. And we group these under the various rights. So the first grouping is actually not a right, it's actually uh, the institutional and human rights infrastructure and policy measures. So that's the first grouping. And we look at any concerns we have around the institutional human rights infrastructure and policy measures in Ireland relating to human trafficking. So again, it sounds very complex, but actually it's pretty straightforward. All we're doing is saying, well, what concerns do we have about how the state is responding to human trafficking in terms of the way we're organizing things? And we simply said that our first concern was the failure to resource and coordinate effectively anti-trafficking efforts. A lack of resources, which every organization, civil society, will have civil society organization will know is is constantly an issue. So, you know, we lay out our concern. We said, despite the adoption of the 2016 Second National Action Plan uh, to prevent trafficking, the state has failed to resource and coordinate anti-trafficking efforts. And then a really important point is we point out that this isn't just a problem in itself, although it is, but it actually means that Ireland is in breach of our international obligations because it means that we're not meeting our obligations under the Palermo Protocol. The Palermo Protocol is an international agreement to prevent, suppress and punish trafficking. And it also means that we're uh, being undermined or we're, we're not making progress on our sustainable development goals. If we're failing to resource anti-trafficking efforts, we're not meeting SDGs 5.2 or SDG 8.7 or SDG 16.2. So it's about making those connections in terms of the concerns, not just with what the issue is, and the issue would be a concern in and of itself, but also what are the ramifications here for our international obligations? We are not upholding human rights, we're not meeting the obligations of treaties we've signed uh, and we're not fulfilling our our real progress on the SDGs, the uh, Sustainable Development Goals. After listing that concern and pointing those problems, we then describe the concern. So it's not enough to say that, well, here's a problem. You actually have to prove that it's a problem. You know, so then you provide evidence and you show, look, here's the situation, here are the statistics, here are the figures, here's the stories we're hearing from other organizations, here's the problem. And then we list our our recommendations. So, for example, for that first concern, we listed two recommendations. Our first recommendation was simply a third national action plan, but this time one that includes a budget, that includes allocation of responsibilities, and that actually includes a time frame. Three things that were absent from the second national action plan. Not sure how it can be an action plan without those three aspects, but there we are. And then the second recommendation we had was that the Department of Justice should reinstate a dedicated anti-trafficking unit that retains responsibilities that had previously been divested to other offices in the department. Basically, the idea was that they had been disseminating 
uh, responsibility for coordination and actually that should be brought back together again in a single hub. So pretty straightforward, simple, but practical recommendations. We're not talking about, you know, there needs to be a revolution. We're saying here are practical things that you need to do in order to respond to these concerns. It carries on like that. Yeah, you know, the next grouping that we come under is cooperation with treaty bodies. We raise the concern here, for example, that Ireland has not ratified the optional protocol to the Convention of the Rights of the Child. We signed it in 2000, uh, but we haven't yet ratified it 20, 21 years on now. And our recommendation, again, very simply, ratify the protocol without delay. So again, we're talking about very simple, straightforward recommendations that are narrow and that are to the point. And being narrow and to the point and practical, we're hoping that the government will look at them and say, okay, yeah, we, we'll do that then. The latest trafficking in persons, the 2021 report, you can see where we were. I think we were tier one, then we were tier two. I think we moved to tier two, tier watch, two watch list. And we're still yeah. at tier two watch list last year. So, exactly. or this year. so you can see where we, we, we have obligations that we're not fulfilling. We have obligations already. We have commitments that are there in black and white that we're not seeing through. So is, is a part of this just a little bit of who, who's watching the watchman? Oh, 100%. And like, as Donald pointed out, that's why it's a review. You know, it's not a case of the all, all of the members of the UN coming together to make new, to, to, to enumerate new human rights or to add new SDGs. It's really about saying, well, all these human rights are already in place and these SDGs are already in place. They've already been assigned up to and agreed to. Um, but where are we failing to actually implement them? And again, that's why, as Donald said, you know, it's not about being confrontational. Um, it's actually supposed to be a peer review. So every single country is reviewed. And at a certain point, the, the member, you know, the member state on the UN Human Rights Council, who is maybe reviewing Ireland this year, will be reviewed themselves next year. You know, so it's not it's not a case of some some uh, some international group sitting on high uh, looking down upon the rest. It's actually it's 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 that idea that well we all review one another and we all hold one another to account. And as Don said, the the brilliant thing about the UPR is that it allows for civil society groups and for the knowledge and the on the ground experience and information collection by uh, civil society groups to actually filter up to that level so that we can turn around and say to the Irish state, you know, Ireland's failing to identify victims of human trafficking. We can actually explain and demonstrate how they're failing to identify them. Yeah. And then we can we can lay out three recommendations and, and that they be practical recommendations that are that are achievable. A government could turn around and say, we don't have a problem with human trafficking in this country. We have identified no victims. We, we have had no prosecutions. So, so we don't have a problem. So as you said, the fact then that it's coming from the ground up, it's people saying, yeah, you know, you, you do have a problem. The fact that you don't have any victims is because you're not, you're not training and you're not equipping the guards or other other organisations to recognise. I think it's not only the guards as well who can actually make that call. Yeah. And we've only had one successful prosecution, I think, and that was only, the ink is still wet on that, I think, isn't it? Only last month, was it? Yeah, in fact, we didn't even get to um, refer, like this was submitted 
Uh, our submission was lodged in, uh, as, as Brian noted, on the 18th of March, okay. um, just after St. Patrick's Day. Uh, that prosecution didn't take place until, um, until about a month ago. You know, we, we don't even refer to that. As far as we're concerned, when our submission went in, there had been zero convictions under the anti-trafficking law since it was amended in 2013. And um, now we have one conviction, which is progress. Yeah. And just on that note about progress, I think it's really important to say this too, and, and Donald's mentioned that as well, like the, the UPR also provides an opportunity for countries to be able to sit before their fellow UN member states, you know, the, the, their peers and say, well, actually we've made significant progress in all of these areas. And, and to be able to celebrate where progress where they have made progress. And I think that's really, really important as well, that it's not about a stick to beat somebody with, that actually there's the positive elements as well of, of providing a, a, each country an opportunity to, to look at their situation, the, the, the areas where maybe they're, they're not meeting the standard and to give them an opportunity to say, okay, let's address that. And to be able to come back in four and a half years and say, well, look, we actually did make progress. The domestic and gender-based violence, what cropped up when you when you were writing that section? Um, I took that section, Suzanne. Um, and I suppose really it came from, well, like as part of the International Presentation Association, one of our commitments or one of our focuses is, I suppose, to end violence against women and children. So in that sense, that was the reason I took this particular section. We kind of went back to where we thought the 2007-2008, coming out of austerity, I would say, we realised that there had been very poor investment. And indeed, um, a lot of those domestic violence services, the money that had been used for them had been paired back around the times of austerity. But thankfully, some of that kind of came back into being. However, the services had been so badly damaged during the times of austerity that they didn't recover enough to be able to stand up in terms of providing for the services that are absolutely needed. So one of our focus, and it was something John said earlier too, one of the things that he mentioned in the human trafficking, the first one is kind of the failure to adequately resource and to provide financial support. And that too is a concern of ours, the failure to adequately resource and implement policies that would support victims of domestic and gender-based violence. And for example, a particular need is, um, everybody in the domestic and gender-based violence sector would agree that there are not enough places of refuge for those in need. Ireland, for example, will say, well, we are providing enough because our, the way we provide is we provide one space for every 10,000 women in Ireland. And whereas every other country in Europe and every other country in Europe says, no, no, you should provide one space for every 10,000 people. That little get out allows Ireland to provide less space. So those things need to be addressed. And they're the kind of things we're looking for. And one of the reasons it became even more obvious now, so certain things like, for example, the pandemic, the pandemic shone a light at this time on this issue in a way that if there was no pandemic, this issue might not be highlighted as strongly as it needs to be highlighted today. So that's why I think this is a particular interest and particular concern and um, that the pandemic has exacerbated the inadequacies and the inefficiencies. It also slowed the, co the court service. It also slowed the guards in terms of their ability to respond to families in crisis. But that notwithstanding, the guards understood that they were facing 
an unbelievable number of complaints and requests for assistance for people who are suffering from domestic and gender-based violence, that they put in place their own campaign, a free ship campaign, which they decided that this needs to be held on to next time around, or even when unlock happens and all the rest of it. So positive things were happening. You could even say too that the last programme for government actually announced and put it in their programme for government that there is an epidemic of domestic and gender-based violence in the country. Now they wrote that in, but they wrote it in, but what did they do about it? They haven't kind of lived up to the commitments that such a statement demands. And all we're doing is asking for that. And another concern that we would have had, something that would have helped them to, 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 to prescribe targeted policy, an effective policy, would be the collection of gender disaggregated data as they used to collect, but stopped collecting. And all of that data had been collected might help them to decide and to pitch their policy to where it would be most effective. So this data, this was commented on in 2016, also at the Office of the High Commissioner's Human Rights Report in 2016, their compilation report after this. And all we're saying is, we're still asking for it five years later. So what are you going to do now? Another thing that kind of comes up again and again is the constant need for training. Now you mentioned earlier civil society and the ability of civil society to participate. It's more than that. If you take the sustainable development goals, for example, the sustainable development goals are driven by civil society and government. Without civil society, they're nothing. If you look at any of the, any of the services that are looking after, often looking after trafficking, domestic and gender-based violence, looking after migrants, refugees and asylum seekers, it is often the NGOs or the civil society organizations. They have the expertise, so that's why it is necessary that they have their, that they have their voice. All of the civil society sectors have been calling for ongoing training for the police, for the guards, for court officials, for court staff, for judges. Gardaí get a module of training when they're in Temple Moor with regards to um, with regards to domestic and gender-based violence. They don't have to do any more than that. It's only interested guards and interested solicitors and interested judges who say, oh, I, better need, I better learn a bit more about that because it demands it. Where in actual fact, we're asking for a, a, a more structured, balanced way of offering out or rolling out continual professional development that would assist victims of domestic and gender-based violence. Equally too, we said, what about those victims of gender-based violence or domestic violence living in domestic or living in direct provision, an utterly unsuitable place for them. They say within four years, it'll be gone. Well, we'll wait and see. But in the meantime, it shouldn't be the case that we wait. So our recommendations flowing for those concerns are really simple, just like John said earlier on. Seriously, all we want really is an, an increase in the provision of refuge spaces in Ireland. That's been called for again and again and again by so many working in the sector. Ongoing training for all frontline personnel. Again, asked for again and again and again. The collection of a gold standard of data. CSO have actually commented that they will be willing to do this as they have done it in the past, that that would help. And then lastly, which I just mentioned a moment ago, gender specific accommodation must be provided irrespective of the promise to phase out direct provision. There is now, subsequent to our submitting this, there is a pilot project where they're intending to do this in one particular place and um, to allow for gender specific accommodation, which would assist those victims of gender-based violence or domestic violence, or equally too, it might assist those who are discovered to have been trafficked, that that kind of place might be a place for reflection and recovery, while victims of human trafficking are assisted in their plight. So they're really the recommendations coming out of the domestic and gender-based violence. But I'm also struck by, as you said, is the place of 
uh, NGOs, it's the place of charities that we rely on so much to do a lot of this work. And yet more and more like direct provision, hostels, homeless shelters, all that kind of stuff, that's all within the private sector now to kind of to look at who's providing these services. Some would say that there might be an abdication of the government's responsibility in terms of um, not allowing, but kind of almost encouraging civil society or charities or congregations to offer services, knowing that there's a compassion or a calling or a vocation involved, which means that there will be better value for money. But then it also means then that if something goes wrong or if there's less money and the service closes, they can say it wasn't them. They can move away from it. They can distance themselves from any provision. But if things go well and say, well, we have paid for it, we've helped out or whatever. But that's why civil society needs to be included. That's why civil society's voice needs to be heard. That's why the UPO needs to be needs the involvement of the civil society sector. Realistically, civil society space all over the world is is shrinking, it's disappearing. And if you could say to that, you know, just like victims of gender-based violence or trafficking or migrants, the pandemic isolated all of those victims. It's literally isolated them, pushed them out into the margins where they couldn't be seen. Things happened that we'll never know about unless we stand up and say, so that's the point and that's the power of the UPO and that's the voice of civil society sector. And I think where civil society sector is strongest is when they represent the voice of those at the margins. I don't think a government agency or a for-profit agency can do that as well as a charity or an NGO or somebody who's impassioned. If you look at, for example, those in hostels who came out during the height of the pandemic to try and put in place COVID safety and COVID restrictions and COVID rules for families where they had nowhere to go and still try to maintain some form of safety, putting themselves at risk and others at risk because they knew the service was needed. That I don't think would be done without the calling, without the vocation, without the passion, without the need, without the civil society presence. So civil society presence means that we're there for the long haul. And I think that's important to recognise in any UPO. Well, well, I may just come in there just to add the following up to that. But, you know, even where the state's approach to providing a service or meeting a need is to work in collaboration with civil society organisations, um, you know, uh, through, provide, to, through the provision of funding um, to those organisations to meet the needs of people um, you know, who have needs. Um, at the same time, it's important to remember that we are working and operating within a human rights structure. You know, this, this is not a vacuum. There is a human rights structure governing um, all of the member states of the, of the UN every country in the world. And it's important to remember that in a human rights setting, uh, we as citizens are the rights holders and the government, the state is the duty bearer. So even if they do outsource responsibility to civil society, it's still on them, on the government to make sure um, that however they choose to go about doing it, that it gets done. You know, however they choose to meet to provide services, that those services are provided. Um, and so, uh, as Brian said, you know, civil society is essential to that. And the danger is sometimes, you know, the governments can take advantage of that by saying, oh, well, it's not our responsibility. But actually, it's up for us to remind them it is your responsibility. 
How you choose to implement it is a matter of policy for government, but be sure it's your responsibility to implement it one way or the other. That might lead me nicely then into Donal and migrants and refugees and asylum seekers, because who, which government has responsibility for, for people as they're being forced to you know, travel across the world for whatever reason? So can you just take me through what cropped up in that section of this review? Uh, sure, yeah. And it's important to recognise that um, the whole issue of migrants and refugees really came on the back of what happened in 2015. We all recall, you know, the the whole fallout from what happened in um, Libya and so forth and the massive wave of people coming from Syria and the Far East. And that was an extraordinary mobilization at that time of people who just felt outraged that people were taking to boats and had to take to boats to escape violence, escape terror, escape hunger, escape disease, all those things. So, yes, yeah, so the mobilization of civil society is, in fact, a very effective way by which states can be shamed into acting. So to get to your question around uh, migrants and refugees, Essentially, there were three elements to what um, we were looking at there. One was the general issue of participation in Irish society. And in order to participate in society, you have to have legal status. So one of the areas we looked at there and, and uh, made proposals on was in relation to how does an asylum seeker succeed in getting some form of pathway to citizenship? And it begins very often with that primary piece of documentation, namely a statement of nationality. For many people who come through the refugee systems who have left a country because they were tortured, because they fled in terror, because they fled, fled because of some humanitarian catastrophe, they don't have documentation. And for many, even to try and go back to their country of origin to get that can be extremely hazardous, almost impossible in some instances. So one of the issues we looked at there was what can be done to make sure that refugees can access citizenship. And uh, we recommended there that the government would waive the requirement for the documentation and simply have a pathway to citizenship that didn't require that uh, initial document if it could not be produced. We also made recommendations as well that the legal processing system itself should be well resourced because if there are, is an application made by an asylum seeker, but there is no one to process that application, it just sits on a shelf somewhere, it just sits in somebody's drawer or it's in somebody's email, it never gets addressed, there's nobody there with the legal uh, expertise to process it, no access to the lawyers who can make sure that happens. That's a block to a person's actualization of the right to citizenship. So that was one of the areas we looked at. The, another issue that came up was family reuni reunification. And this came up in an interesting sort of way in that we all, when I say oh, we, I mean those of us who are working on the project, we were aware of one particular person who was unable to have his wife rejoin him here in Ireland for all kinds of reasons that we could never quite understand. 
So that issue of family reunification was something that we addressed. And we looked at the fact that there is legislation, in fact, passing through the door right now in a bit of a limbo because of COVID. But certainly it's that legislation, which is the International Protection Family Reunification Amendment Bill from 2017. We definitely wanted that uh, put into, into law. Now, as Brian actually mentioned, when we started on this path, when I, passed, when I started on this path, really, and those of us who were working on um, a project with migrants and refugees, our whole focus was on direct provision. Our whole focus was on housing. And in fact, some of us were working with an initiative of one of the congregations who were anxious to uh, assist the Irish Refugee Council in providing accommodation. So accommodation and housing was uppermost in our minds, particularly the whole horror of direct provision was very clearly central stage. So it was during that whole time that, in fact, the white paper was uh, published. And when that white paper was published, at one level, you could say the wind was taken out of our sail. At another level, we were absolutely delighted to see, okay, here it is. And it contained pretty much all of the recommendations that civil society people had made. So it allowed us then to kind of say in our submission, what we want to pursue now and what we want to actively follow is the implementation of that white paper to make sure that it gets implemented. Another area, the third area that was of concern to us was the whole area of social inclusion. Now, this is a very fraught area because many of us can recall many instances where attempts were made to house refugees, for example, in different parts of the country and met with local opposition. But that was countered by the one inspiring example that remains in my memory was that shopkeeper up there in Balladurin who said, look, refugees, asylum seekers are welcome here in this town. But it, it, it copper fastened for me that notion that civil society, local communities have a role here. And when you think back over the last 20, 30, 40 years, really, how often it was the case that it was civil society, voluntary bodies that provided services, be it Simon or others, they, St. Vincent de Paul, they, they all provided services that the state simply wasn't providing. Now these civil society organizations are still active in those areas, but they're also the spur to the state to, to get involved and provide opportunities. Now, in the case of refugees, there's no getting away from the reality of racism. There's no getting away from the fact that there is opposition very often to migrants or refugees settling in their community. So again, there has to be a concerted effort not to, as it were, stigmatize local communities by calling them this, that or the other, but to actually support local communities to welcome refugees, to welcome migrants. I might instance Balbriggan as a case in point. The work that's being done in local communities in Balbriggan is simply fabulous, outstanding really. Civil society organizations, voluntary bodies, local communities, they cannot do that without support. So we were recommending and are recommending that the state continue to support those organizations in every way they can. One of the other areas, of course, obviously is education and the pathway to education all the way to third level needs support. So we strongly are recommending that that service be provided. 
And it's also true that language learning and uh, citizenship education, but particularly maybe language learning, is an absolute first step for many people, for many um, migrants and refugees, that they can have access to language classes. And indeed, uh, my own organization, we were involved, still are involved in providing those services in the Lantern Center there in Sing Street. But, and that's replicated all around the country. But again, those organizations do depend on receiving some form of state subsidy, some form of state grant, some form of public body support. So again, we are recommending that services of that kind within the community be fully maintained, supported and extended. So it was those three areas of participation in Irish life, uh, the area of uh, housing, the area of social inclusion. They were the three main areas that were a focus for what we were saying there in, in the submission. But I think it's I think it's really also less well understood that, you know, migrants, refugees, people that we regard as often a burden on the country sometimes, they are an, a, a considerable resource for the future. They are the people who will make changes. They are the people who will bring us to the next stage, you know, scientists, poets, you know, changers of the world, really. So you never know who you're talking to. Keep going back. This is a wealthy country. There's enough for everybody. There's plenty of room. There's plenty of money. We just need to look at how, as you said, how Absolutely. those resources are, are distributed. You know, that's really the key thing. There was two things that we that, that maybe we didn't mention. We might have mentioned it. Well, one we didn't mention the last time is at each step of the work that we did, we kind of evaluated our own way through it as well. We came back at what we had done afterwards. So like, for example, next week at some stage, our intention would be to reply to all those people who had registered to attend our video or to, to send them a copy, to tell them a little bit more about what will happen next. So to keep people in the loop, but it's also a way of us revisiting and evaluating our work, I suppose. And then the other thing we did do at the webinar was where we, we, um, we helped people to feel included in what the plans are next or our next plans, if you like, in terms of um, motivating people to lobby this coming September or grouping people. And our plan is to meet people again this coming September with a view to planning out how best we can lobby a country who will lobby our country on the concerns and recommendations that we have made and with the help of Edmund Rice International who we hope will facilitate uh, a workshop or a webinar we're going to try and work out how best to move our um, submission if you like along in terms of that kind of work and it, the whole way up until November when the UPR is on. And then afterwards then is to keep an eye on what's going on. And as Donald had mentioned too, we're watching policy and watching things change. And if we keep watching things change, we're also kind of keeping, we're watching it with an eye to what we have recommended and what our concerns are and how things change. So that there is a review, I think two years on from, kind of a midterm review, I think two years on from, and to be interesting to see what comes back out of that and how best we can. So it's kind of, we're in it, I suppose, for the long haul at this stage. So that'll be the next part. Like we have we have an opportunity now through ERI to, 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 to make a statement on our particular submission as part of civil society, which is an important step. It also represents a huge opportunity. And I think too, even with our work, like trafficking, 
you know, trafficking is gender-based violence and domestic violence. Yeah. Trafficking is involving migrant refugees and asylum seekers. So if you were to say there was a there was a uh, an overarching kind of theme that would run through this, it would be trafficking to some extent, even though there are lots of other issues. But you can see you can see the commonality. But I think Suzanne, you're you're certainly speaking to a truth there when you say it. not everybody understands this. Like I know that. Um, I myself and people who work in this area, in this particular way of doing things with the human rights and with the UPR and so on, we get a lot of grief from people, you know, who are out there on the streets working with people on the streets. And they say, you haven't a clue about what's on the streets. You have, you don't talk to people on the street corner. You don't meet people, you know, in a cafe or on a bench or whatever. And I say, I know that. Now, the fact that I do it actually, I do actually do that kind of thing too now and again. But... There is this this sense that ah that UN stuff that stuff with human rights it's you know it's all kind of for intellectual types who do nothing you know and yes and yes it does it's the only way to make fundamental systemic change happen. You get the last word, Donald. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you found it useful. If you have any ideas for any conversations you'd like us to have, any topics you'd like us to explore in future podcasts please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.